I want to begin with a question. Are any of you list people? You like making lists. Maybe stuff you have to do today, stuff you want to buy, home projects that you want to do. Maybe you like creating, creating lists for your spouse. I don't, I don't like those kind of lists. I like making lists, but more than that, I like crossing things off my list. And if there are things that I did that didn't go on the list, I'll put them on the list just so I can cross them off. I'm, I'm sure it sounds like I am not the only one who does that. Well, lists are fun most of the time. Uh, I, I used to read a blog uh, that would have a Tuesday hate list. It was filled with just everyday sorts of things that the blogger hated. Uh, I contributed one time. Uh, I remember it clearly because I still hate the thing that I posted about. You know when you do laundry? Yes, I, I do laundry. And, and, the, and the fitted bed sheet is in the dryer with a bunch of other, there's a bunch of other stuff in there with it. I hate it when those things get trapped inside the fit. I see you, you, you know what I'm talking about. I hate it when those things get trapped in that fitted sheet and they don't get dried, then you have to do it again. I hate that. Well, I, I want us to create a little list of our own. It'll be an imaginary list, so you'll have to just do this in your mind. We're, we're about to move from the mundane to the serious. On your pretend stationery, I want you to write down all those behaviors, all those ways of living that are contrary to the ways of God. Some of you may have already have, have this numbered in your head. This exercise may be a little bit too easy. Think through them for a second. What are those ways of living that aren't in line with the ways of Jesus? You got them? Okay, hold on to that for just a bit. Well, as we saw last week, Paul's letter begins with him introducing himself. He gives us his credentials. And then he expresses his desire to visit them in person. Paul is thankful for this community, and he wants them to become a stronger community of faith. He's been transformed by the gospel of God, and he wants them to be, experience that same transformation. But Paul's way of telling them about God's transformative power, it's a little, well, it's a little peculiar. I'm not sure it's the way that I would have chosen to write. I guess when given the choice of giving you the good news or the bad news first, Paul chooses the bad news. So let's read what Paul writes following his introduction. We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clear, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to, in their lust of, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And, say, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're, they're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Man, somebody needs a Snickers. I mean, Paul, he comes out firing here. I mean, if you want to make friends and influence people, I'm not sure this is the way to do it. I've been reading the biography of Eugene Peterson. He's a well-known pastor and writer. You know him as the one who wrote the message translation of the Bible. Well, there's this story about Eugene. When he entered first grade, he encountered a bully named Cecil. And for months, Cecil would corner Eugene and just pummel him, leaving him black and blue. Well, one day something just snapped in Eugene. And this part of the story reminds me of, of the scene in the Christmas story when, when Ralphie finally gets tired of Scott Farkas beating on him and he just unloads on him. Well, this is, this is what Peterson said about Cecil. He said, I realized in that, in that moment that I was stronger than he was. And, and I pinned him to the ground and I hit him over and over and there was blood spurting on the snow. And all that Eugene had learned about loving your enemy just kind of disappeared in that moment. And other kids were cheering him on. But then something happened. Eugene's Christian training kicked in. And he said to Cecil, Say uncle! Say uncle! And Cecil wouldn't, so he just kept hitting him. And then he finally he yells at him again, Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And after more hitting, Cecil eventually said it. And Cecil was his first Christian convert. <laughs> and that was the first and the last time that he punched the gospel into someone. To be honest, it's kind of how it feels like Paul begins this letter. It feels like he's trying to punch the gospel into this church. The way he describes humanity's descent, is, it's pretty grim. I keep asking myself, why would Paul begin like this? Why would he say these things? Why would he do that here? Well, Paul's language, it takes us back to creation, where God's power and nature are in full display. As God's created beings, we are created to know and to worship and to love and to serve the Creator. The story of creation is the story of a God who, who wants to be in a relationship with His creation. We are to be co-creators, stewards of all that God had made. We are meant to, to face God. That's what it means to be in a relationship, to face one another, to see the other, to hear the other. There's a partnership. And this is what we are made for. This is the original blessing. But there's a problem. Paul tells the Romans that humanity gave up that blessing. Much like Esau gave up his father's blessing for a bowl of stew, humanity gave up God's blessing for something cheap. We, we, we turned from God. We turned our face away from him and toward that which was created. Verse 25 says that humans exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Now, I want to put a pin in, in that before we come back to Paul. You may remember back to Exodus. The people have been rescued from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and now they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is going to meet with God to receive the law. In Exodus 19, verse 16, we read, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Well, there it is. The people have been rescued. Now they wait to see what God expects of them. In that culture, people worshipped other gods. These other gods were far off and distant. People didn't know what the other gods wanted from them. People lived fearful that they would upset the gods. But this god, Yahweh, was, was about to tell his people what he wanted. They wouldn't have to guess, to wonder, to, to be afraid. This God wanted to be one with his people and for them to be united together. So God tells Moses what he expects of them, what to do so that life will go well with them in the new land. But the people, oh, the people, they grow weary. I mean, what is taking Moses so long? Why, why is it taking him so long to come down from the mountain? I, I can hear more than one person saying, is he there yet? I am so bored. Well, going forward to chapter 32, verse 1, we read this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Did you notice the change in the people's posture? The scene begins with them at the foot of the mountain, looking up. There was expectation, longing, dependence upon what God would say and do. They were facing God. Then they got bored. Things weren't happening fast enough. They thought life would be different than this. It was time to vote someone else into office who would carry out their agenda. So scripture says that they gathered around Aaron. Their faces were turned away from God and to Aaron. And we know what happens. Aaron gives them what they want. You can always find someone who will give you what you want. And I just advise you to beware of them. Religious religious hucksters who are content to placate and give you something that you can manage, control. And in that moment, the people gave up relationship for ownership. Rather than worship and serve God, humans now worship and serve things. And we call these things idols. Idols are things that take God's place. What are idols for us today. What are they for you? I I googled that question, what are idols today? Some of the responses were money and entertainment, sex, our phones, our Instagram identity. Some might say coffee or chocolate or exercise. I I don't know if those are really idols. Maybe, Maybe addictions, but I'm not sure I'd call them idols. But to worship an idol means that we try and secure our way of life by means other than dependence upon God. We take our comfort, our security, our means of production into our own hands. And for Paul, this is the heart of sin. This is what sin is. Sin is that elevation of humanity over God. The self and and what the self wants is worshipped over God. When when Paul talks about sin, he he does so not in terms of sins, plural. He's not talking about a bunch of different acts. The Greek word he uses is hamartia, which is about missing the mark. The mark isn't some perfect action. The good news that Paul is proclaiming isn't about a a sinless perfection. No, to miss the mark, to sin, sin is about estrangement from God. It means that that relationship is broken. And because humans have, have turned and worshiped created things, God gave them over to what they wanted. 
And from that comes Paul's list of vices that we see in verses 26 through 32. Paul's, his vice list is, is filled with ways of living that are out of line with God's ways. No longer are humans living in peace with one another. No longer do we see each other as those bearing the image of God. Rather, we see each other for what we can get. People are seen as objects for my own pleasure. We are all estranged from one another. C.S. Lewis, he's, he has described hell as a place where people move further and further apart from each other. Now, to some introverts, this, sound, this sounds like heaven, but Lewis is, is right. Separation from God and others happens when we turn from facing God, when we turn away from a relationship with God and begin worshiping idols. And Paul says that we've turned from facing God, and because we've turned, we can no longer reflect God and God's character. You can't reflect something or someone that you're not facing. And next week, Pastor Rob will remind us that this estrangement from God isn't just for a select few bad people, but all have sinned, all have been estranged from God. Now, for many of us, we've listened to, we've listened to this first part, but we know that theoretically we've all fallen short. But when we hear Paul's list of vices, I mean, we really aren't that bad. I mean, we'd give ourselves a pretty good grade. And we may have gossiped a few times, been a little arrogant in our younger days. You know, we probably disobeyed our parents on more than one occasion. But we certainly haven't done, I mean, the really bad stuff like, you know, those people. There are scholars who contend that the passage that we've just read from Paul is, is this Trojan horse. And for you folks who know or who are familiar with literature, you may remember that the Trojan horse is that, that wooden horse that the, that the Greeks used to enter Troy and win the war. Inside the wooden horse was, was a trained force who would let more Greeks into the city and they would overtake the city and win the battle. And so to say that the end of chapter 1 is Paul's Trojan horse means that everything that he said up to this point is setting up what he's about to say in the next part, what he will say in what we know as chapter 2. So I want us to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's, ju- when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey right unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now just in case Paul hadn't offended everyone yet, he completes the job here. It's probably true that most of us don't make that vice list that, that Paul wrote in chapter 1. I mean, we haven't done the really bad stuff. 
well, remember that imaginary note card that I asked you to fill out at the beginning. This is the, the list of stuff that, the ways of living that were out of tune with God, those lifestyles, those habits, those awful, sinful ways. My guess, if I was filling it out, and maybe you too, is that most of those lists are about other people. What we've seen, you know, non-Christians do. You know, the, those people. The ones we send emails about and make posts about on Facebook. I'm guessing those things that you've struggled with may not have made the list. But now Paul is turning to us, the righteous, the not so bad, and he says, you too, you have no excuse. And he says, those who pass judgment, yeah, those of us who pass judgment on others, we tend to act like we know the whole story and are thus suited to play judge and jury. Paul says that we stand in judgment, for we have taken God's rightful place as judge. We have elevated our own sense of rightness and wrongness and have turned from God. So no longer do we reflect God. Now we reflect the ways and the patterns of our world. I think, I think Paul's right. Typically, it's not the vice list that we struggle with. Those of us who have gathered here on a Sunday morning, it's this second part. The Trojan, the Trojan horse has snuck in and got us where we live, in that place too often of self-righteous judgment. The thing, the thing about viceless, when we list all the ways that bad people live, is that it separates us from one another. We separate ourselves as the pure ones, the holy ones, the ones who know better. Our assumptions about others leads us to create boundaries where we are in and they are out. For those concerned about justice, God's justice will prevail. Paul tells us that God will set things right. There are those whose lives will continue to lead to continued separation from God. And there are those who will experience glory and honor and peace. Paul reminds us that God does not show partiality. It may not be according to our standards and rules, but God will set things right. But honestly, it's, it's taking God a little too long. We're getting bored. God's people are growing impatient. I mean, doesn't God see what's happening here? I mean, haven't the wicked prospered long enough? We need someone else who will fight for us. We need someone who will carry out our agenda. Take your time, God. We've got this. And I wonder, for those, for us church folks, if that's the rub for us, we've put ourselves in God's spot. We, we've taken the helm rather than co-creating and co-operating. We've told God, thanks, we'll take it from here. I don't know if we would actually say this or think that exact thought, but what do our actions reveal? Our missing the mark doesn't look like Paul's vice list. It looks like putting ourselves in God's place. We've turned from our God to ourselves, and in so doing, we've estranged ourselves from God. I so badly wanted to go further in Paul's letter. Paul is setting up something bigger, which, which Pastor Rob will get to next week in chapter 3. So, so rather than stepping on his passage, I want to go take us back to the beginning of Paul's letter. At the start of the sermon, I asked why in the world Paul would begin a letter with such a dark outlook. And here's what, I, here's what I've come to. I think we need to see ourselves rightly before we can see God rightly. We need to see that our religious pedigree doesn't elevate us above others. Paul wants us to make a turn, to make a turn away from ourselves into God. 
But when I, when I say we need to turn to God, I don't, I don't mean that we need to become some earlier version of ourselves. I'm not talking about some er- earlier, pure decade. There was sin there too. In Paul's introduction to the letter, he addressed the church as those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So to turn to God means to turn to the God who stands before us, calling us forward into the future to be saints. To be saints. It's a call to face God who longs to be in relationship with us. God longs for us to be a unique people who depend on him, who wait on him, and who would reflect his character to the world. To turn to God means to turn to Jesus, who showed us what it means to be fully human. And in Jesus, we see what it means to be aligned with God's ways, to walk in step with him. In Jesus, we see what it means to be in a relationship with God and others without cutting ourselves off from others. In Jesus, we get to see one who was one with the Father. High school was a strange time for me. I think that's probably the case for most of us. I feel like much of that time was spent on trying on different personalities, looking for a place to fit in. And looking back, many of those personalities, they just feel inauthentic to me. They, they were inauthentic. Even though I wasn't sure about most things in life, I acted pretty sure. And I think it's pretty typical for that, for that age and stage of development. I saw things a certain way. Life was black and white, right and wrong, and I was pretty confident that I was always on the right side. I'm not sure many of us you know, feel that we're not on the right side of things. But there was, there was one day, maybe it happened on multiple occasions, but I remember wearing a certain t-shirt to school. This shirt made fun of people um, who were different than me. I was right, they were wrong. And my t-shirt let everybody know, they let everybody know that at the expense of those that it hurt. Honestly, I'm embarrassed. Um, I'm embarrassed of that story. I'm sad for the people that it hurt. As I look back and I see the sin in my own life of my, that self-righteous judgment and how I wished I had lived into God's calling so much earlier. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, I began to see myself rightly. I began to see that I was saved by grace, not by being a good person, not by being better than others. Well, the story doesn't end there. God got a hold of my heart and coming to faith, my face turned away from worship of self to the worship of God. I had been reflecting the ways and the priorities of the groups that I was trying to be a part of, but now as I faced God, I began to reflect the ways of the kingdom. It took time. Way too much time, if you ask me. It took patience. I had to depend on God to do this work in me and had to learn to hear God's voice. The truth is, like all of you, I'm still on this journey. I'm thankful for God's faithfulness to us on this journey. I'm still learning to live as one who is loved by God and called to be a saint. A saint. I'm not sure Protestants like that that word a whole lot, but it's a good word for us to lean into. Biblical writers use it time and time again to call us into, into an identity, a new identity. A saint isn't perfect. A saint is a person who is set apart for God's work. A saint has no other agenda than the kingdom of God. 
Brothers and sisters, we too are called to be saints, to have no other purpose than to be a reflection of God and God's character to our world.